morning, Hebrews 11. And before I jump in here, I did forget to mention kind of the schedule coming up for this next couple uh, weeks with our services. I did want to just make note that tonight's service, uh, Brother Rusty's family, we'll pray for them. They actually came down, it appears to be with strep throat this last week, and it's kind of gone through the whole family, and so they decided to stay home today uh, and try to give themselves another week. So Brother Rusty will not be preaching tonight. Brother Derek is actually going to preach for us tonight. Appreciate him being willing to swap that kind of last minute and uh, preach for us tonight. And so Brother Rusty will be preaching next Sunday night. And then, of course, we're excited to have Brother Kevin as well preach for us next Sunday morning. And, uh, and so that's the schedule for the upcoming services here. And, of course, you're welcome to join us on Wednesday night. We're doing a, a study through uh, uh, overcoming and how to respond during perilous times, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so just studying a little bit through that chapter uh, for the next couple weeks. All right, Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Anybody know what Hebrews chapter 11 is called? The faith chapter, yeah, the faith chapter. People, we, or, or you know, some people call it the, the, the chapter of the heroes of the faith, or heroes of faith, and it's, it's really a, a list of, of people. The writer of Hebrews is, is in many ways going through and highlighting those who walked by faith uh, in their lives and allowed God to do a work in their lives, and really, it, Brother Harm said it in Sunday school, but to show what the God of the impossible can do. And uh, they did that by walking by faith. And we're, we all know this, you know, uh, the, the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And the idea of faith, uh, and again, Brother Harms taught this in Sunday school even a couple weeks ago. I forgot to bring his, his uh, definition that he had brought out, but I was reading through that. And uh, verse number one of chapter 11 basically just tells us that the definition of faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The idea of faith is it's not about emotion, it's not about religious tradition, it's not about my feelings. The idea of faith is just quite simply acting, taking action in something that I'm unable to see the outcome or unable to see the purpose or unable to really see the evidence of what I am going to be doing, but I have a substance of hope in my faith that God is going to do something in that. God is going to work it out. Uh, again, my emotions aside, my feelings aside, the idea of faith is to continually take step. You know, I, I get to thinking about this. We always equate faith with just religious things, but the reality is that every day you're putting faith in something. Every single person on this earth is putting their faith in something. Uh, the majority would be pay, putting faith in themselves, in their own intellect, in their own abilities, in their own wisdom, uh, maybe the wisdom of someone else that's around them or or teaching, or education, or whatever it might be, but they're putting faith, or they're trusting in something to say, that is going to be what my evidence is, that my hope is in that for an outcome that I can't see. Because again, nobody can see their future. Nobody can see what the ultimate outcome of their actions will be, and their decisions down the road, but, so they have to take steps of faith. But we as believers are told to walk by faith and not by sight. We cannot see the things that God has for us but yet to walk by faith in that we uh, give our full reliance, our full trust into the Lord in every step that we take. Whatever direction He wants to go, we take a step not knowing exactly what will happen, but again, by faith following what He has for us. Hebrews 11.6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Without faith, it is impossible 
to please Him. It is impossible to please God without walking a life of faith. Uh, If we walk in our own knowledge, our own wisdom, we walk in faith in of ourselves, faith in of our own actions, uh, the world's uh, teachings and those types of things, we are not going to please God, no matter the outcome. The outcome might come out to be what we would say, oh, that's a good thing, it's positive, look, I was in church, or look, I, I gave to the church, or look, I, I, uh, uh, I brought someone to church, whatever it might be, but if we're doing that not through the lens and the, 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 the requirement of faith, it is not pleasing to God. Again, the book or the chapter here, Hebrews chapter eleven, is uh, called the 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 faith chapter. Or and there's heroes of faith, and and you would name these names, and you'd you'd go back to stories, you'd say, "Wow, look at what these people accomplished! Look at what these people did in their lives! Look at what God allowed them to do!" And you know what I find is interesting is that the more you study the lives of some of these individuals, you'll find that they're not much different than us. They're not much different than us. They didn't magically wake up one day and say, yep, faith is the way to go, and I'm all in, I'm all, gonna, I'm, I'm all for it, no big deal. Head first, feet first, I'm all, I'm all in. In fact, <clears throat> there's several that are mentioned in here that had a reluctant faith. They had a reluctant faith. They hesitated. And we're going to this morning look at this idea of overcoming reluctant faith. We're going to look at five individuals in Scripture, mostly in the Old Testament. One will be in the New Testament, but five individuals who overcame a reluctant faith and ultimately ended up walking by faith, and we see that God rewarded them, and you can see what God accomplished in their lives. But overcoming reluctant faith, and these five individuals each have a specific characteristic that I think we can draw out to say, you know what, in my life, I've probably had that same reluctance. I've probably had that same hesitation. I've probably had that same concern when taking a step of faith. And I just, my, my desire is that we'll be encouraged to say, Lord, help me to overcome that so that I can take steps of faith and please you with my life. How many of you like roller coasters? I know Brother Greg does. Brother Greg and I keep plotting this trip that him and I want to do to Magic Mountain. Drive out, go to Magic Mountain, drive right back. Like no hotel stays. No, nothing. Like, we're just going to die trying to get there and come back. I mean, we've, we've talked about this a few times, and it hasn't happened, mainly because he's kind of wimped out. So anyways, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, I do enjoy roller coasters. Um, I was doing a little bit of studying. Uh, the, the biggest roller coaster, at least this was some years ago. I don't, I, I don't know if, it's, um, if there's one that uh, beats it. Uh, I think there's something that beats it by speed now, but this is still crazy. In New Jersey, at a Six Flags in New Jersey, there's a roller coaster, roller coaster called King Daka. Anybody heard of King Daka? So King Daka, uh, at, at, at one point, it's 456 feet high that this roller coaster goes to. It propels at the beginning to 128 miles an hour in 3.5 seconds. So at the very beginning, I watched the video. The person in the front had a camera right here. I felt like I was on this ride. It was kind of cool and scary. And, uh, but, but, I mean, you just you, 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 you hit that 128 miles an hour in three seconds, and then you just climb to 456 feet. And then it begins to level, and then you drop from 418 basically straight down, and then the ride's over. That's it. You probably paid a good amount of money to get in line for three hours to do a 20-second ride. But it's crazy. 
G-force of five. It says it has a five G-force. And the max vertical angle at one point is you will be 90 degrees at an angle. That's pretty intense. Anybody willing to do that ride? Greg, Yannick, yeah, I know. All right, a few people. Brother Harms, yeah. you'll do it? All right, Greg, throw him in the van. <laughs> uh, the, the biggest roller coaster I've been on, or I, I shouldn't say the biggest, um, but probably one of the, and this isn't even that impressive when you compare it to King Dakka, but the Goliath there at Six, six, uh, six Flags of Magic Mountain. Goliath goes to 235 feet, and that initial drop goes 85 miles an hour uh, coming down. And then you go straight into a tunnel. It's like Heart Attack City. Uh, it's, it's just a little intense. Um, but 235 feet, 85 mile per hour max speed. Um, it's a little bit of a longer ride, a, few, a couple loops and a couple other things in it. Uh, but again, pretty fast. Uh, the first roller coaster that I ever went on that was somewhat intense at Six Flags, I was about 10, maybe, actually, no, I was probably a little bit older. I was probably closer to 14 years old. And it's called the Viper. Anybody ridden the Viper out there at Six Flags? All right, so the Viper. The Viper is only 188 feet tall. It only goes 70 miles an hour. It only has a G-force of 4.1. It only goes 55 degrees vertical at one point. So it's not that bad. The thing that people like about the Viper is that it has seven inversions. So it has these corkscrews, you know, where you're like inverted all the time. And it just keeps looping through these corkscrews. So that's kind of what's intense about Viper. When, we, when I was 14 years old, my parents said, we're going to go to Magic Mountain. And I said, great. I love roller coasters. You know how I knew I loved roller coasters? Because I went to Castles and Coasters out in Metro Center. And it has one loop. And I was like, I love roller coasters. I'm going to handle this just fine, Mom. And so we went, to, we went to Magic Mountain. My brother hates heights. My brother hates roller coasters. So we did all the regular roller coasters and the river raft thing and, and you know, all these different rides. And it gets closer to the night, and my parents are like, okay, we're coming around to this end, and this is pretty much the grand finale. He's to do Viper. And my brother's like, I'm out. He went and sat on a bench. He said, I'll sit here the whole time. You guys have fun. And I'm like, I'm in. I got up to the thing, and I barely was tall enough. In fact, I might have done tiptoes. I'm not kidding. I was like, I'm doing this ride. You know, my dad's like, all right, you'll be okay. And so my dad would usually ride by himself, and I then I'd ride with my mom. And uh, so we sat in line, and I remember thinking, oh, man, I'm, this, is, this is great. This is the perfect demonstration of faith is to put yourself on a roller coaster, right? Well, we stood in line. It probably was 45 minutes to an hour to wait in this line. And about 30 minutes in, all of a sudden, I'm watching it go, and I'm getting closer, and I'm hearing more of the noise. I'm just seeing more of the people scream. And I'm just, and, and, and all of a sudden I'm starting to think, do I really want to do this ride? Do I really want to do this? And so, you know, we're kind of going and I'm kind of watching my parents and they're just, yeah. And I'm thinking, should I have stayed with Wes? Like, I don't know if I really want to do this. And so we're getting closer and we're getting closer and I'm getting this knot in my stomach. I'm getting this like feeling of, I don't know if I should do this. And of course, every bad possible imagination is, I'm going to be on the one that leaves the track. I'm going to be on the one that I slip out of it because I'm not tall enough. I'm going to be the one that, you know, I'm thinking of all these scenarios and I'm just, I'm really caught up into this. And, and it got to the point where my, my mom looked over and I had tears in my eyes. And she's like, what, 
what are you doing? I was like, I don't know if I should do this ride. I don't know if I should do this ride. And she's like, well, if we get up there and you don't want to, I'll switch and sit with your dad and you can just hop over and get off the ride. You know, you don't have to do it. And I'm like, I oh, know, I know. And so I remember just, just sitting there, sitting there, and it finally came to our turn where we had to get in. And I was like, am I going to sit down? Am I going to sit down? And so I sat down, and then they locked in the harness. Well, I wasn't small enough to get out. Like, I couldn't wiggle my way out of this seat, you know? So I'm like, well, now I'm stuck. And long story short, you know, it, the ride went. It was a blast. I got done, and I looked at my parents. I'm like, let's do it again. Like, that was awesome. My parents were like, yeah, that was pretty cool. Like, we already knew it was going to be, you know? And I'd say that story to say this. You know, I watched my parents go up and get on this roller coaster without much hesitancy. I mean, they just said, it's a roller coaster. I trust that it's going to keep me safe. I trust it's going to be fun and I'll get done. But for me, I was reluctant. I was a little hesitant. I remember being uh, 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 nervous and anxious and stuff. But ultimately... I got through it. Ultimately, I did it. And, you know, I look at people in the Bible, and I look at these heroes of faith that accomplish these roller coasters in their life, and they accomplish these great feats of, 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 um, of the impossible that God allowed them to do. And, and I say, man, how did they do that? Oh, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could just, by faith, step out and do something big for God or, or go witness to someone or be faithful to church all the time or, or give. I mean, I don't have that much to give. How can I do these things and walk by faith? And yet, I, as I studied several of these people, I realized, boy, they had the same hesitancies that I have. They have the same anxiety or they had the same concern or the same care. And ultimately, they had to have God help them get through their lack of faith, their reluctance to do what God had them do, and they ultimately did what God asked them to do and did great things. And so it was an encouragement to me to say, hey, God has some things that he wants me to do, and yeah, I'm reluctant many times. And there's various reasons, and we're going to look at some of them today. But ultimately, there's, there's a belief and understanding that if, if I will do what God is telling me to do, he is then pleased, and he will then Make a way for it to be accomplished. He will be the one to accomplish what he wants done in my life. So I just need to take these steps of faith. And so this morning, we're going to look at five individuals here in Scripture. And again, we won't have time to go through their whole story. We're going to give you an overview, and we'll do our best to call out some key uh, parts of this. But five individuals who showed a reluctant faith, showed reluctance in their obedience and in their walk of faith. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3 to start this morning. Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> Brother Greg, I do promise that if we go to Six Legs, I won't cry in the line next to you. <laughs> Exodus chapter 3, I think uh, most will be familiar with this story. And the story of this individual, but we're talking about Moses here in Exodus chapter 3. And the background real quick is that obviously the children of Israel are in captivity to Egypt. Moses, uh, when he was born as to, to Jewish parents, he was a Jewish man. But when he was born, his parents uh, allowed him to be taken to Pharaoh's daughter and, and Pharaoh's daughter uh, allowed them to watch over him. But he was raised within Pharaoh's home. So he was more of a, of a common person to the house of Pharaoh than he was to Israel. And we know the story that as, as Moses was getting older and he was seeing what's happening to his people, there came a point where someone was being abused and Moses went and struck an Egyptian and killed him. 
And the Israelites are like, why are you doing this? You're going to bring harm upon us. And so they, 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 they caused him to flee. And Moses then went out to the desert and he began to work for his father-in-law. And he began to herd sheep and he, and he, and he, and he uh, got away from Egypt and got away from that conflict. And you get to chapter 3 that says, Now Moses kept the flock, in verse number 1, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And you can go on here, verse number 6, he's told to draw nigh and to remove his shoes because he's on holy ground. It says, moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So God comes to Moses in this burning bush, and it's not consumed, and Moses is just fearful of what is this that's happening, and God is telling him to fear not, this is who I am, and he declares himself to Moses. And in verses 7 through 10, he tells Moses what he wants him to do. You're going to go down into Egypt, and you're going to deliver my people, and you're going to bring them out of this captivity, and you're going to bring them into a land that I'm going to give you that flows with milk and honey, and I'm going to do this stuff on, on your behalf. He says in verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses jumped right on the ride, right? Moses jumped right in, put on his harness and said, let's go. No, he didn't. Moses said unto God, who am I? That I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then God gives him an answer. He says, well, certainly I'll be with thee. And Moses at verse 13 says, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He says, You'll say, I am that I am. And he goes on to keep telling Moses what he's going to do and what he's going to declare and what he's going to say to Pharaoh. And that they're going to hear your voice. And he goes through the rest of this chapter talking about how uh, God is going to influence this whole situation to bring the people out of Egypt. And they go to chapter 4, verse number 1. And Moses answered and said, But, behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. He had one excuse, right? What am I going to say to him? Who am I going to say sent me? <laughs> I don't even have a great message. And then secondly, well, they're not going to believe me anyways. I'm an outsider. I was raised in Pharaoh's home. I, they don't even know me. They're not going to believe that you sent me. They're not going to believe that you appeared to me. Ah, they're not even going to believe me. And then the Lord, after the second excuse, tells him, take up this rod. Cast it down. It becomes a serpent. And Moses freaks out. Whoa, the serpent. He says, now grab it by the tail, and it becomes a rod again. He says, put your hand in your bosom. Pull it out. He's full of leprosy. Put it back in. Pulls it out. It's healed. God is revealing himself more and more to, to Moses, saying, look, what I'm telling you to do, I can make it happen. I can make it uh, occur. And then verse number 10, excuse number 3. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord says, Well, who's made man's mouth? Who maketh the dumb or the deaf? Have not I the Lord? 
Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And listen to what Moses says. He says, and he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. You know what I take that he's saying there? He's like, well, if you're going to have someone speak on your behalf, could you just send that person? Couldn't you just send that person that can actually speak then? Like, do you need to send me? And then the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses. He's like, I'm done with these excuses, Moses. I'll send Aaron then, okay? Your brother, he can go with you. Moses here gives these reasons and this reluctance. And I, and I, say, I said this, my, my, my thought is this, that Moses felt like he was unskilled to do what God wanted him to do. Moses felt that he did not have the talents or the ability or the wherewithal to be able to do what God was asking him to do. And so he's putting up this reluctance. Lord, I am not qualified. Look, who, who am I going to say even sent me? I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. And then they're not going to believe me anyways. I, I'm not a talented, skilled a person with the Jews. I grew up in a different place. Like, and then, Lord, I can't even speak. I mean, like right now, I'm muttering and I'm trembling and I, you know, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And, and, and he's giving these excuses, this reluctance that he's unskilled. He's got an unskilled faith. I'm just not good enough to do what you're asking me to do, Lord. Lord, I don't have enough talents, enough ability uh, to do what you want me to do. This last week, like I mentioned earlier, we took uh, Adam up to camp to work at, for the summer. And Adam, you know, we got the letter, I think, back in January when they first said, hey, you know, uh, I think Dylan referred Adam uh, to work up there. And so they sent Adam a letter and said, is Adam interested in doing this? And so I talked to him. I said, bud, you know, I think this would be a great opportunity. And Adam's like, okay, yeah, I mean, why not? And then as it got closer and closer, I could tell in Adam that there was, I don't really know if I want to do this. I don't know if this is something I want to do. And what, I, what it boiled down to for Adam is, I've never done anything like this before. I've never been away from home for more than a week. He's going to be gone for five weeks. Adam's never done that before. He's never had to uh, 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 be responsible for a, an ongoing, regular uh, uh, job responsibility that he's got to get up in the morning, he's got to get to, he's got to do a good job, he's got to make sure he follows different protocols, working in a kitchen and you know, different regulations and things that he's got to be aware of and all these different things. And I can just tell that this is kind of overwhelming to him. And, and, and I remember thinking, maybe I shouldn't have him do this. Brother Derek was talking to me yesterday, and uh, he said, so you didn't have uh, Adam snuck in the trunk when you came back home, right? I said, I don't know, I was tempted to. <laughs> I was looking at his face. I could tell as we were leaving, he was starting to get overwhelmed. He was starting to feel like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? He was a little emotional, and maybe because his mom and I were. I'll, I'll say he probably had more strength than we did. Um, but I was like, man, I really just want to tell him, you know what, forget it, bud, throw your stuff back in the vehicle. We'll let you learn another time. You'll figure it out. But then as I began to think about Moses, I thought, you know what? God wants to do something through Adam. Adam at some point is going to have to understand, I am not skilled in everything. I am not learned enough to be able to do something. I don't have the abilities and talents to do everything that God wants me to do. But you know who does? God does. And I remember thinking, if I were to pull Adam from the situation, he then does not get to exercise faith to do something that he cannot see the outcome. He does not know how he's going to accomplish it. But if I just let him go, even if he's unskilled, even if he doesn't feel prepared, God can then do something in his life this summer. And I remember telling him right before I left, I grabbed him by the shoulders, I just looked in his face, I said, bud, be open this summer to let God do whatever is in your life. I don't care 
if you get up every day and go run like I want you to. I don't care if you do all these other things. What I care is that God does something for you this summer. And, you know, he might feel like Moses did. I'm not skilled enough. And he's reluctant. But, but God is still trying to push Moses. Moses, look, I'm going to accomplish these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that our gifts and our talents and things don't come in and of ourselves. Our abilities and our, and, our, and our talents that we could then exercise by faith are not things that we equip for ourselves anyways. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now there, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. It is the same God that gives someone a talent over someone else, someone a skill in the church, and someone else a different skill. But ultimately, it's God that gives the ability to accomplish something. And sometimes we can look at something and we can say, wow, pastor's asking me to, pastor's asking me to give a testimony in church, or pastor's asking me to, to preach, pastor's asking me to, to, to sing. And we say, I don't have the ability to do those things. I'm unskilled. I'm unlearned. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not talented enough. You might have a, a boss or you might have a, a, a situation where God is pushing you. God might be pushing you to witness to someone. You may say, I'm not a skilled giver of the gospel. I don't know what exactly to say. I don't know how to present it to someone. And God is saying, I'm the one that worketh all in all. Whatever gifts you're about to use, whatever talents, God is the one that works. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says this, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, God is not waiting for you to have the right talent. God is not waiting for you to have the right skill. God is not waiting for you to have enough education, enough uh, uh, time into an experience, enough uh, uh, wherewithal to know what to do. God is not waiting uh, for you to become qualified. God doesn't call the qualified, someone once said, but he qualifies the called. God is just waiting for us to take a step of faith. Yeah, I don't have the skill. I don't have the ability, but God, I'm willing to take the step of faith and move forward. And God says, I am the one that worketh, with, worketh in you which is well-pleasing in His sight. He is the one that it makes perfect every good work to His will. That's God that does that. Maybe today we're like Moses and we're reluctant. Maybe God is pushing us to do something and we're saying, I'm not skilled enough to do that. Oh, I'm not skilled enough to take that on. Uh, I, I, I need more time. I need to understand it more. I need to be able to, to, to fully engage and know what I'm supposed to do. You know, that reluctance just keeps you from taking steps of faith. Unskilled. Moses was unskilled. Turn to Judges chapter 6. We'll look at the second person here. Judges chapter 6. Anybody got a guess of who is in Judges chapter 6? Gideon. Yeah, Gideon. What a great story, the story of Gideon. And we tell our kids and we tell people the story of Gideon and how he accomplished this great thing for the Lord. Judges chapter 6, verse number 1 says, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. 
and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And I won't read a, a, a lot more of this. I'll just give a summary. But Midian didn't just prevail against Israel. Midian destroyed Israel any chance they could. It says in those verses that any time they had a harvest, Midian would come in and ravish the harvest. Whatever they grew, Midian would swipe it all. Uh, whenever, whenever they'd have a, a, you know, the grains would grow and they'd have uh, fruits and grapes and all the things that they would make a living off of or that they would be able to, 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 to feed their families on, the Midianites would come and take all of it. And then it got to the point where they were so uh, fierce and so difficult to be around and they created such conflict that Israel would go up into the mountains and build caves and, and hide out in dens and caves just to get away from Midianites. Verse number 7 says, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you. I am the Lord your God. Verse 10, Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. So they cry unto God, and so now God is going to say, okay, we'll deliver you again. This pattern that happened with Israel, they would disobey, they'd get punished, God would deliver. Verse number 11 says, There came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, and pertained unto Joash the Abizrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said, And the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. This angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. Now, Gideon is, it says, he's threshing wheat by the wine press. Again, if you're not familiar with what a wine press is, a wine press was simply a box that was built. They usually put it in the middle of the vineyard. And this, this box was, you know, maybe a several feet high. And what they do is they dump all their grapes into this box. And then the people would get in it and you would stomp the grapes to make the juice. And then you'd have a way for the juice to flow out the side into your different uh, vessels that you would store the juice in. But this, this wine press was where you would press all your, your grapes down. Well, Gideon was not in the wine press pressing grapes. He was threshing wheat. Do you know where you usually thresh wheat at? You usually thresh wheat out in the open. It used to be, it would be this big, huge uh, uh, block type thing and they would bring all the grain in and you would just sit there and thresh the wheat where you're knocking off the grains and you're taking out the, the tares and you're separating out the wheat and it would be right out in the public, right out for everybody to see. It was, it was a, a well-known thing to do and it would be, and they would just do tons and tons of grain. Well, Gideon is not out in the open doing this work. No, it says he's hiding in the wine press. He's over by the wine press. Why? So that the Midianites can't see him. Well, one, he knows the Midianites are just going to take it. So if he, if he threshes this wheat, the Midianites are just going to take it. But I think also there's probably an element of fear that Gideon has for what the Midianites might do if they, they find these, these things that he's doing. And they find him doing this. So the angel of the Lord comes to him and calls him mighty man of valor. And Gideon says unto the angel of the Lord, well, if the Lord's with us, why is all this happening? And if the Lord, you know, really is going to do all the, he did all the miracles he did for his fathers, why isn't he doing anything for us? And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, All right, I'm in for the ride. Right? Gideon just jumped right on board. Said, you're right, I'm mighty enough, I can do this. 
No, he says, and he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I am the least in my father's house. When he says least, he doesn't necessarily mean youngest. He doesn't mean, he, he, he's clearly saying, you just called me a mighty man of valor. I am the least valiant man you could probably find. I'm the least of those in my family's house. Oh, I probably have a brother that's much stronger than me. I've probably got a dad that, I mean, my dad, he could whoop anybody else's dad. I mean, he's that kind of dad. So uh, why are you coming to me? And then it goes on where he tries to prove this angel and he goes and makes this meal and he comes back and the angel consumes this meal and, and, and basically Gideon is so afraid that he just saw God, that he just saw this angel face to face, that he just saw this happen and the angel says, fear not. And the story goes on. He's told then to go knock over this, this, this idol of Baal in the temple and he goes and does it and the people of, of, of that area want to come after him. They're saying, who did this? And his dad kind of sticks up for him and, and kind of subdues their desire to go after him. And then it comes towards the end of the chapter and this is the well-known part. But then he's told, okay, you know, things are starting to come together. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 34, came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Abiezer was gathered after him, and it says all this stuff starting to come together. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece. And we know the story where uh, he puts out this fleece, and he, and he says, Okay, if you really want me to do it, if I'm really the mighty man that is going to go out and do this, um, make sure that the, the fleece is wet and the ground around it is dry. And God does that. And then he says, Okay, well, make sure that the ground is wet, but the fleece is dry. I might have had those reversed, but though, and, and, and God does that. And so Gideon then says, okay, I'll go. When God came to Gideon, did Gideon jump up all excited and say, yes, I'm ready to do this? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He was just like Moses in that he, he was reluctant. He was hesitant. I say this about Gideon. I see a fearful faith, a fearful faith. Gideon saying, I'm not strong enough. I'm not mighty. I'm the least person you want out there. There's no way I can overcome the Midianites. The Midianites were described as grasshoppers, a multitude of grasshoppers along the field. You couldn't even number them. They were enormous in, what, in, in, in number. Gideon's like, I'm over here in a wine press, threshing wheat, staying away from the Midianites. I don't want conflict with them. I'm the least of the people. You call me mighty man of valor, would you call me that? That is not who I am. And Gideon showed some fear with doing this. And so he says, I got to try to prove God. If you say you're going to do this by my hand, if you say you're going to give it to me by, uh, you're going to be my strength, then you need to prove yourself, God. I'm asking you to prove yourself. In fact, even in verse 29, he says, let not thine anger be hot against me. He says, God, I'm going to ask you to prove yourself one more time. Please don't be angry with me. Now, I think there's a lot of things you could still teach out of this. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that there's not, it's, I don't think God was even angry that he asked him to prove himself. I think, again, what the point is, is that Gideon was reluctant. Gideon was unsure of, is this really the step of faith I should take? Is this really what you want me to do, God? I, I need you to, to validate it. I need you to prove it for me. I'm fearful of these Midianites. I'm fearful of, of, of not having the strength that I need to have in order to fight them. He was reluctant. 2 Timothy 1 says, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That's basically what he was saying to Gideon. Gideon, I'll give you the strength. Gideon, I'll give you the protection. Gideon, I'll uphold you. Philippians 4.6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known unto God. The idea of being careful is the idea of don't be fearful or don't be anxious or don't be worrisome. Uh, bring it to God. Let your request be made known unto God. Don't live in fear. Psalm 56.3, one of my favorite verses growing up, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. You know, there are times of fear. All of us have times of fear. Um, situations, relationships, uh, moments that we know might create conflict or moments that are going to be difficult. And we have a fear of how will people respond to me? How will people accept me? How will people uh, understand me? Uh, maybe I think they're going to bring harm to me or maybe they're going to uh, mistreat me and we can have this fear. And oftentimes that fear can then cause us to not take steps of faith. Forgetting it almost held them back. It almost held them back from doing what God wanted them to do. He was reluctant. His reluctant faith uh, marred by fear. Go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Let's look at the third one here. Jeremiah chapter 1. You've got the unskilled faith. You've got the fearful faith. And number three here, the inexperienced faith. Inexperienced here in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It says in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, I formed thee in the belly, uh, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, all right, let's go. What do you want me to do? No, he didn't. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. What did Jeremiah say? When God came to him and said, Jeremiah, when you were in your mom's belly, I already ordained you to be a prophet. You were gonna, you're going to do some great things for Israel. Israel is in a very difficult time right now, and you're going to be my prophet. You're going to be the one that's going to speak to them. You're going to be the one that is my mouthpiece to them. And Jeremiah, the first thing he says is, Behold, I cannot speak, for I'm a child. I'm inexperienced. I, I, I don't have the respect. I don't have the, the experience to stand up in front of all these aged people and all these other authority leaders, and all these other people, and speak on your behalf? I'm but a child. Most people would say that Jeremiah was probably no younger than 16, but probably no older than 20. Could you imagine God coming to you at that age, saying you're going to speak for a nation of a couple million people, and you're going to speak for a nation that is about to go through some of the most horrible moments in its history, captivity, and destruction, and persecution, you're going to be my mouthpiece for that, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord. I love how it's with an exclamation point. He's emphatically serious. God, there's no way. I am but a child. I am inexperienced to do this. I, 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 why are you telling me to do it? 
And the Lord said unto him, Say not, I am a child. You know, we can get that way. <clears throat> I remember as a young person thinking that. Um, now I'm too young to say something to you know, someone at work. You know, this person's been working for like 15, 20 years. I probably shouldn't say something that's right. Or I'll, I'll just let that slide. Or maybe even in church as young people, sometimes we can get to where we say, yeah, I'm not going to take that on. I'll let someone that's older do that. I'll let someone that's older and more experienced do that. And I'll just kind of wait until it's my turn. Look, if God calls you to do something, regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, you ought to be willing to take a step of faith and just do it. You know what Paul told Timothy? He said, let no man despise thy youth, but be an example of the believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity. Wow, that's a pretty big load for Timothy to take on. The Lord says, be an example, but not just an example in being a nice guy. No, no, you be an example in word, in conversation, in charity, in your love and in your spirit and in your faith and in your purity. You be the example, Timothy, even though you're young. Don't let someone despise that. Don't someone look down on you and say, why are you doing something for God? You're too young for that. Or why are you doing something for God? You're too experienced. Even as a young believer, you know, so if, if you haven't been saved a long time or you've been saved but haven't really been involved in church, you don't have to wait for God uh, to let you have all these experiences before you can say, okay, I can do what God wants me to do. If He calls you, He'll equip you. Solomon obviously had a lot of wisdom and Solomon, at the end of Ecclesiastes, calls out the young man. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou, that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from my heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon is saying, hey, from a youth, get going in remembering God. Get going in doing something for God. Get away from these foolish little uh, vanities of things and these, these evil things that you'll bring upon your life. No, no, get serious about God as a young person. Don't let God despise you, or don't let people despise you because you're young because you don't feel qualified, because you don't feel experienced. You can look throughout Scripture of people that God used at a young age. I think of David. I think of Daniel. I think of Joseph. I think of Solomon. Solomon was a young man when, when God was basically coming to him and, and David was, was pushing him to become the, the king. He was young. I think of Mary and Joseph. You know, the Bible says that Mary was a virgin. You know, there's a, a clear implication that Mary was not an aged woman. I mean, Mary was a young woman that had yet to be married, had yet to have kids, and God used her. And by faith, she allowed God to use her and bring about the Messiah of the world, uh, bring about Jesus Christ at a young age. She didn't let the, you know, people despise her for what she was going to have to go through. She didn't, she didn't uh, tell God, no, I'm too young for this. No, no, no. She was a willing vessel. Perhaps we're reluctant because we feel inexperienced. Maybe we're too young or maybe we're too new at something or maybe we just haven't had enough time and experience in something. Uh, that reluctance can keep you from doing what God wants you to do. An unskilled faith, a fearful faith, an inexperienced faith. Number four, go to the book of Jonah. I think that gives away who this one's about. The book of Jonah. This is an unwilling faith. An unwilling faith. 
You know what can keep us from walking by faith is just not being willing to walk by faith. (laughs) Saying, no, God, I'm not going to do it. Jonah here, verse number one. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And we know the story here. Gets on a ship, and he thinks he's somehow going to flee from God. He didn't just say, God, I'm not skilled enough. God, I'm not experienced enough. God, I'm afraid of Nineveh. You know who Nineveh was to Israel? The Assyrian people. They were brutal murderers to Jews throughout their history. Fierce enemies to the Jewish people. You know what Jonah probably wanted to happen in Nineveh? Bolt of lightning, destroy it. The last place Jonah probably wants to go to is a place where the people hate Jews and Jews hate the Assyrians. And yet God says, get up and go to Nineveh. So he doesn't say, well, God, you know, I really don't like those people. No, no, God, he doesn't have any conversation with God. No, no, he just says, no, I'm not willing. And he gets on a ship to go somewhere else and he thinks he's going to flee. And of course we know God doesn't let him flee. God doesn't let him uh, get too far and he gets swallowed by this great fish. And we know the story where he gets spit up on the, the dry land. And in chapter 2, he prays and God says, all right, I'll bring you out of the, of the belly of the whale. There at the end of verse number 10, I love how it says, and it vomited out Jonah. It's pretty descriptive. Uh, just vomited him up. Anybody hear that story this week about the guy that got swallowed by that humpback whale? Thought he was going to die. He could, he could feel the whale was trying to maybe swallow him. <laughs> and then it just bleh, spin him up into the water. Anyways, uh, kind of a cool story. He wasn't as cool as Jonah. He didn't last as long. Uh, but Jonah here, and then it says in verse number, or chapter number 3, the word of the Lord came the second time. Go to Nineveh, preach unto them. So he finally arose. And he said he went and preached to Nineveh. And God caused one of the greatest revivals in all of history not just that moment, in all of history. You're talking about potentially millions of people, at least hundreds of thousands of people that live in the city of Nineveh, these Assyrians. Repent, even the cattle. I mean, it was an amazing repentance. And what does it say in verse number, uh, chapter 4, verse 1? But it pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he goes on to say, I wish that I would die because this has happened. And so then Jonah left the city and he was sitting in the hot sun and then he had this gourd, but then God allowed the gourd to be swallowed up. This whole situation and Jonah is just a miserable person. Why? Because he was rebellious. He, was, he wanted to say no to what God wanted instead of saying yes. You know, we may end up doing something that God wants us to do, but if we do it out of an unwilling heart, we're not pleasing God. And we're not getting what God wants us to get out of it. Hey, if I come to church because I have to come to church, I can guarantee you this, you won't get out of church what God wants you to get out of church. If you give in the offering plate, yeah, I'm supposed to give. Okay, fine, I just throw it in there. And I just give, not willingly and not out of a heart of faith. It is not pleasing to God. You can give $10 million to the church today, but if it's out of a grudging heart and spirit and a lack of faith, it is not pleasing to God. He doesn't care about the dollar amount. Jonah was uh, reluctant because he was unwilling. He says, no, I don't want to do it. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly. The idea of grudgingly is not unwillingly. 
not with this spirit of, I guess if I have to, or of necessity, like you're forcing me to do this, but rather as a cheerful giver, a giver of faith, a person that is cheerful to say, whatever God wants me to do, I'm going to do it. As he purposed in my heart, God purposed in my heart to do something, so by faith I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it with a cheerful heart, willingly. Jonah was not willing. Jonah was uh, unwilling to do what God told him to do. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, Thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. David is telling him, Hey, listen, you need to come to God with a willing and a, and a submissive heart and a willing mind. You need, to be will, you need to be open to doing whatever God, because he'll search out your heart. He'll find your motive. And if your motive isn't right, he'll cast you off. But if your, moment, your motive is right to seek him and to follow him and to walk with him, then he'll never forsake thee. He'll be found of thee. 2 Corinthians 8, 12, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to the, that a man hath and not according to that he hath not. Again, I can give God all my talents. I can give God all my treasures. I can give God all my time. I can give God all the things that I could possibly do and say I'm walking by faith. But if I do it with an unwilling spirit, then I'm not walking by faith. You know, the whole story of Jonah is such a sad moment to see someone that accomplished such a great thing, and you know what? He missed out on it because he was so caught on himself and unwilling to just walk by faith, do what God called him to do. No, no, no. It was all about Jonah. Unwilling. There's a story of an old sailor who would repeatedly get lost at sea. So his friends came to him and gave him a compass and urged him to use it. The next time he went out in his boat, he followed their advice and took the compass with them. But as usual, he became hopelessly confused and was able to, unable to find land. Finally, he was rescued by his friends. Disgusted and impatient with him, they asked, Why didn't you use that compass we gave you? You could, saved, you could have saved us a lot of trouble. The sailor responded, I didn't dare to. I wanted to go north, but as hard as I tried to make the needle aim in that direction... It just kept on pointing southeast. The old sailor was so certain he knew which way was north that he stubbornly tried to force his own personal persuasion on his compass. And unable to do so, he tossed it aside as worthless and failed to benefit from the guidance it offered. Can't we just be like that? God, you want me to live by faith, but this is the direction I think faith has taken me. And God says, no, 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 you need to go north. Oh, I'm unwilling to go your north. I want to go my north. Listen, you're not walking by faith then. Just because you don't know what the outcome is of the direction that you're walking, you can't claim to say, well, this is walking by faith, so I'm doing what God wants me to do. No, it's walking by faith in obedience to what God wants me to do. That's walking by faith. In the early years of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln became so angered at the inactivity of, of his Union commander, George McClellan, that the president wrote his commanding general this one sentence. If you don't want to use the army... I should like to borrow it for a while. Respectively, respectfully, Abe Lincoln. You know, he was basically saying, he's like, look, you've got, uh, you've, you're unwilling to use what I've given you to use. You're unwilling to go out and accomplish what you need to accomplish. So you know what, just give it back to me and I'll do something with it. You know, and sadly, there's so many Christians that would rather probably say, I'll just give it back to you, God, because I'm unwilling to do what you want me to do. I'm unwilling to use what you've given me to use. I'm unwilling to go where you've called me to go. Well, as Hebrews 11 tells us, if we don't walk by faith, it's impossible to please 
God. You will not please God by unwillingly going against Him and going into your own direction and forsaking what He's called you to do. You've got an unskilled faith, a fearful faith, an inexperienced faith, an unwilling faith. And then lastly here, go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We'll look at this last one here this morning. John chapter 20. And verse number 24. This is right after Jesus' resurrection. He's appeared to some of His disciples. But it says in verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus has already made an appearance to some of the disciples at this time, but Thomas wasn't with them. The other disciples, verse 25, Therefore said unto him, unto Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. The implication is there is that Jesus came right through the wall and entered into the middle of that room. Didn't open the doors. The doors were still shut. And he just came right into the middle of that room. And he looked directly at Thomas. He saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord... And my God. You know, Thomas had spent three years following Jesus. He had seen Jesus' ministry. Thomas was a disciple. He knew the things that Jesus had done. He knew the things that Jesus had said were going to be done. He knew that Jesus said he was going to die and rise again. He was fully aware of those things. And yet, when Jesus died, and when Jesus had resurrected and come to some of the disciples, those disciples said, hey, this guy did what he said he was going to do. Jesus is who he says he is. Thomas said, nope. I will not believe until I've had a chance to see the nails and feel it, until I can put my hand into his side, until I can experience it for myself, until I can see it with my own eyes. I will not believe. It's a very strong statement. So Jesus obliged him. Jesus came into his presence. This is, again, a man that was with Jesus for amount of time, called one of his disciples and Jesus says, be not faithless, but believing. Again, we call him this on purpose, but we call him doubting Thomas, a doubting faith. A faith that says, yeah, I'm going to wait until God shows me something. I'm going to wait until God proves something. Kind of like going back to, to Gideon there at the end of that story. Oh, I want God to prove out. And we constantly will throw things in, the, in, in front of God to say, well, prove, well, prove, well, prove. I need something tangible. You know, maybe God will sometimes give you something tangible, but many times maybe He won't. Are we going to be the type that says, I'm not going to walk by faith until I get what evidence I need? I've done that before. I've, I've been at like a, a situation where there was someone and I thought, I should probably witness that person. And I sat in a chair and I said, okay, God, if that person walks over to me and says something, I'll witness to him." And then they came over and said something to me. And I was like, okay, God. After the service then, since they spoke to me, if they're still here after I go greet some people and I do some things, I'll catch them out in the parking lot, then, then I'll say something to them. Okay, God, well, they kind of left in a hurry. I mean, they left fast. You must not have wanted me to talk to them. So that's okay. I, you know, my faith is intact. You know, whatever it is, it's just silly. But we, you know, we do some of these things where we say, well, God, I want you to prove yourself. God, I, I, uh, I, I don't believe it until I see it. 
You know, even more importantly, the doubting faith keeps people from the saving faith and actually coming to Jesus Christ. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He believed on the Lord. I, I would take the word of the Lord to be what it says there. I believe this is when he got saved. This is when he actually fully put his faith in Jesus Christ for who he was and, 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 and believed on Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Those three years he traveled with him, he, he may have been doubting the whole time. He may have been unsure that whole time. I need to see God do something. Imagine if Thomas had died before Jesus had resurrected. He was waiting and waiting, waiting, and doubting and doubting and waiting for God to prove it. How many things we miss out on because we want God to just create the right scenario and, and prove everything out for us, and yet God is saying, just go. Romans 14, 23, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. James 1, 6, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. The idea of nothing wavering is the idea of doubting. I go back and forth. The double-minded man in that same passage is unstable in all his ways. The double-minded man is just, I go from one thing to the next. I don't really know if I believe that. Well, I don't know if I really think God wants that. I don't know if God wants this. And we keep wavering. He says, no, no, just live by faith and just go. Stop wavering back and forth. Philippians 1.6, Be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God says he'll perform whatever he's asking us to do. We don't have to doubt that. We don't have to wait. He promises to do it. So just five examples of people that were reluctant in their faith. Unskilled, fearful, inexperienced, unwilling, and doubting. And yet, we know that the stories all didn't end like that, right? We know that they all didn't have these moments of reluctance and God say, fine, I'll go to someone else. God is so amazing in His grace and in His mercy. He says, no, if there's still some amount of willingness, if there's still some element where I, He's willing to keep coming after us, He's willing to keep drawing us. Sometimes in our stubbornness, we'll not take steps of faith and it's like God has to keep drawing us like He did these folks. But we know how the story ends. Moses finally tells his father-in-law, okay, listen, I gotta go. I got to go to Egypt. And Father in law says, go in peace. And he jumps on the roller coaster ride that was the plagues and the Red Sea and the wilderness and the manna from heaven and the Ten Commandments and the, and, and the scouting out of the new land and the, 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 the hitting of the rock and all these things that Moses experienced because he finally got over his reluctance of faith. And he's mentioned in the Heroes of Faith, the, wall, the Hall of Faith there in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. Moses choosing rather... You know what it doesn't say in there? Moses was slow going on his faith. No, no, no. Moses is recognized for living a life of faith. It took him a little while to get there, but he did it. Gideon is mentioned in verse number 32. And we know the story of Gideon where the, his army is dwindled down to 300 men. And they have just a trumpet, a, a, a vessel, a pitcher, and a lamp. <laughs> Listen, that isn't going to do a whole lot to a grasshopper-sized army, and yet we know the story. They, they go up there and they, they spread out and they break these pitchers and they throw these lamps and they blow their trumpets and they, they shout and the Midianites begin to just fight each other and kill each other and then the small factions go off and getting them are able to go and slay some of them and they take the heads of some of the leaders. Man, they were victorious. You know what Gideon was able to say? God did make me a mighty man of valor. God did show strength. 
Hey, it took him a little while to get there. He was a little reluctant, but God did something. Jeremiah, oh, I'm just young. I can't do this, Lord. I'm too young to do this. And Jeremiah finally said, okay, I'll go and do it. And Jeremiah saw a tremendous amount of prophecy fulfilled, of prophecies even given that would portray Jesus Christ in the future. And Jeremiah was the one that was a mouthpiece to Israel to deliver that message. As a young man, he started. Maybe 20 years old, and he's out there delivering harsh. Man, this guy was imprisoned by his own people. He was beaten. He was persecuted. They call him the weeping prophet because he wept all the time for his country. He wept all the time for his persecution. And yet God used him tremendously. He's not mentioned by name in Hebrews chapter 11, but Hebrews 11 verse 32 talks about the prophets. And I think Jeremiah is included in that. Jonah is one of those where, yeah, he still went and did what God wanted him to do. He saw this great revival, but he missed out. He missed out on really experiencing the joy of seeing his faith worked out because he just was unwilling to accept it. And then we know the story of Thomas. He believed when he overcame his reluctance, his, he overcame his doubt, he believed. And he became a servant for the Lord that many believe that uh, uh, he went on to even travel as far as India in, 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 in sharing the gospel and, and, in, and spreading the word of God and was martyred at some point in India uh, at the end of his life. But here was a key witness. And you know what else is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Those that went on and were torn asunder and were martyred, and were killed. You know who's probably uh, thought of in that is Thomas. Why? Because he ultimately found a way to get over his reluctance and to step out by faith. Of course, we know these individuals didn't do it on their own, and we, could, we can go and preach the other side of this of how did they end up doing this. Well, it's because they ultimately finally acknowledged what God was going to do. They acknowledged that God was going to be the one to strengthen them, that God was going to be the one to do it for them, that they could not do it in of themselves. And God would never leave them. God would not leave them without strength. God would not leave them without the necessary resources to do what He wanted them to do. And you could spend a lot of time preaching uh, those passages of what God did on their behalf. Maybe today there's something in your life that God is telling you to do and you have a reluctance Maybe it's one of these. Maybe it's something I didn't mention, but maybe you're just holding back a little, saying, I'm not really sure, God, if that's what I should do. You can overcome your reluctance just like these guys did. Just like these individuals did. You can overcome that reluctance and say, ah, I want to live a life of faith. The same God of the impossible in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God of the impossible in your life. And He wants to work. And He desires for us to have the ready faith. And I think of Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 8, when the Lord, Isaiah sees this picture of these seraphims and these cherubims above the, the throne, and he's saying, woe is me, I'm a man that is undone, a man of unclean lips, I am not worthy to see the things of God, to see the throne, to see these things. And the angel comes down and puts a, a, a burning coal on his lips, and then God says, who shall I send, who will go for us? And what was Isaiah's response? Here am I, Lord, send me. Isaiah said, I'm, I'm willing to go. The ready faith. Do we have a faith that is ready or do we have a reluctant faith? If it's reluctant, say, God, help me overcome whatever that is that's causing me to be reluctant and to hesitate. Help me uh, find victory in you, to find a solace in you and comfort and strength and whatever it is that God can give you, He can give to you. And say, I want to have a ready faith, 
A faith that is ready to do whatever God asks me to do. I'm ready to say, here am I. 